Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stockman. I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, a very special baseball town, not only because of the Kansas City Royals and their rich history, but KC is also the birthplace of the Negro Leagues. In 1920, Andrew Rube Foster gathered at the Paseo YMCA with other black baseball team owners and founded the Negro National League. Today, that YMCA building is less than a mile from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, which does extremely important work to preserve the legacy of black and Latino men and women that played Negro League baseball. I'll be talking to Dr. Raymond Doswell, the museum's VP of Curatorial Services, during today's episode. Following my conversation with Raymond, I'll be talking about his dear friend, the late great John Jordan Buck O'Neill, in this episode's Overtime segment. I hope you enjoy this rich discussion of black baseball history. Well, today on the podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Raymond Doswell, VP and curator at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. How are you, Raymond? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I'd love to start with how you first discovered the Negro Leagues yourself um, and when that took place and what were your first thoughts when you first learned about the Negro Leagues? That's interesting. Uh, Well, I'm originally from the St. Louis area, so you kind of grow up with a baseball in your hand or at least watching baseball with the popularity of the St. Louis Cardinals. And I was no different. I remain a diehard St. Louis Cardinals fan, but had heard about the Negro Leagues as a child in our youth, but nothing in school really about it. And in St. Louis, there's a, a street named after James Cool Papa Bell, and you've heard about him, but never really any details of what he did or what it was about. And I even recall uh, watching uh, the weekend evening movie. Uh, that was on television. It happened to be the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings from 1976. Uh, This was a few years later and it was on television. And that was probably my first introduction, at least to some relevant story about the Negro Leagues. And I always found it interesting, but can't say that I was one who studied it much. And I, I enjoyed baseball as a baseball fan, loved it. I wouldn't consider myself a baseball historian per se. Uh, in that same way, but just really just love the game. Of course, love the Cardinals and watching them. As the years go on, I get an opportunity uh, to teach high school and go to graduate school and learn about uh, working in museums. Uh, and while doing so, uh, working on my master's degree in California, it's in uh, public history, museum studies, archives, things like that. And you need to do an internship. And this is when I first learned about the baseball museum uh, effort. This would have been around 1994-ish. So what's significant about that, that this was right after the base, it was the baseball work stoppage uh, around that time. And, but that fall was the premiere of the Ken Burns documentary on baseball. And there is a famous part of that was the legendary Buck O'Neill. So that was my first introduction to him while a graduate student watching those programs and learning about him and and learning about the history. And as I was doing, looking for internships as part of my program, I learned about the museum. They were just getting started uh, and they couldn't accept interns at the time uh, because I wrote to them. Uh, So I ended up fortunately being able to intern at the Smithsonian and I did that. But as I was finishing my graduate work, this is 1995-ish now, I write back to the museum and say, well, now I need a job. And they said, well, we still don't have a curator. to, <laughs> So uh, maybe you can do that work now. And so they interviewed me and I've been here ever since. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I wanted to ask you about that because in doing some research, I had seen that you had been there since almost the beginning. And so what's kind of been the biggest change besides the the location at 18th and Vine and just the more more knowledge about the museum? Are there any things that have been any other big shifts over that time? Well, we've had a number of shifts. I think when I first came on board, uh, the museum was in a in a small gallery space of about 2,000 square feet, but growing in popularity both locally and somewhat nationally in terms of his presence. Of course, Mr. O'Neill's presence on television was a big part of that. He was a star first baseman with the Monarchs and, and spokesperson for the museum at the time, serving volunteering as chairman of the board as well. So his popularity among baseball fans and then among baseball players, which he had been doing for a while in uh, an honorary scout role for the Royal Kansas City Royals as well, continued to bring increased attention to the museum. So by the time I come along, the museum is in the midst of building what they hope would be a permanent facility as part of a renovation down here in the 18th Divine District that includes the American Jazz Museum. Uh, I mean, among the first people that I met uh, coming into the museum were ballplayers like Garrett Anderson. And then a few weeks later, uh, actually right before Anderson, it was King Griffey Jr. Uh, who came in and visited with Buck and took a tour of the small gallery that they had at the time. And that gallery was beginning to welcome uh, several hundred people uh, from across the country who wanted to learn about the history. People famous and infamous were coming through from politics, from entertainment, from sports. And then eventually by that fall, especially fall of 1995, the museum was also in the midst of having a large players reunion. There were probably about 200 plus living Negro League players uh, who were invited to come to a reunion to uh, see the museum. And that was, I was thrown in the midst of that, helping with planning and, and things uh, just a few weeks on the job. But uh, it was a rewarding experience and uh, got to meet a lot of very interesting people. And there's a lot of national media and things like that. But the goal all along was to try to build this larger facility. So I was able to hit the ground running in terms of trying to shape what that looked like. A lot of planning had already been done, but tried to put my museum training uh, lens on there with an eye towards uh, the customer and, and, and visitor experience and what was practical in terms of storytelling as well. So uh, again, I didn't know much detail about Negro League's history. That wasn't my job. My job was to organize the collections and help manage those things uh, and learn some history along the way. But I am a historian of African-American history. So help to try to contextualize the baseball stuff within the realm of the broader American story. So, and over the years that that mission con continued, but also evolved. Uh, we have a larger space now. We welcome more visitors, more school groups. My job has evolved from just curator to also education director. At one point I was the president of the museum and uh, also managing operations. Uh, the operations have grown. Uh, our interests have grown in terms of merchandise and things and people interested in books and things like that. We advise uh, filmmakers, we advise kids doing National History Day projects. 
Uh, we advise presidential libraries and anyone that wants to have, have an interest in learning about this history and that role has grown. Unfortunately, the staff hasn't grown quite as fast because this is just still me and that makes it more difficult sometimes. But we also realize too that there's an important research function that we serve and we're not able to do that adequately in our current space. So our hope is to also build a research and education center, which right now, uh, is slated to go into the old Paseo YMCA building around the corner from the museum. This was a Black managed YMCA, a segregated YMCA, which has been abandoned for well over 30 years, uh, but was the birthplace of the Negro National League, a meeting held to form the Negro National League in 1920, first successful Black baseball league. So it has that historic tie, but its space allows us to expand if we're able to raise the money to complete uh, the space so that we can have research center archives as well as an event space for the museum. That's awesome. I know being from Kansas City and, and being to the museum several times, I've heard those stories about Buck O'Neill and his kind of vision and, and the president of the museum, Bob Kendrick, and I've heard him talk several times about how it's not just a baseball museum, it's a civil rights museum. And you've certainly uh, just alluded to that where you're trying to educate folks about the challenges that they faced, but also the joy that they played with and how they brought that to Major League Baseball. And so I just think it's a really unique quote where it's just a civil rights museum that just happens to be about baseball. And that's how you all try to frame it. And I think it's a really great way to educate people about the history and, and everything that they went through. And I'm really excited to learn more about the, the Buck O'Neill Research Center in the Paseo YMCA. And can you kind of talk about that initial meeting with Rube Foster was there in 1920 when they founded the Negro National League? So our understanding um, uh, from the news reporting of the day, because unfortunately no one's alive who was there, <laughs> uh, uh, there, there was news reporting because the Black press was very much involved in helping to organize the meeting. Uh, historian Phil Dixon writes about this in, in his book, uh, Biography of Wilbur Bullet Rogan, uh, that a number of Black baseball entrepreneurs kind of come to this moment where there were independent Black baseball teams going back to the 1800s, but having league structures, uh, having groups of teams agreeing to play common opponents, having some governing body, if you will, to manage transactions and rules and all these other things, but more importantly, to have a regular schedule was always important for the stability of the individual teams as businesses. In addition to that, we're in the midst of the great migration of African-Americans across country, at least the beginnings of that after World War uh, One, and it, uh, really going back to uh, slavery and reconstruction, but especially after World War One, African-Americans are moving by the millions across the country from rural areas to urban areas, from plantations to factories and things like that. And although there was great interest among fans for black baseball, there wasn't a critical mass of people, especially in urban areas, at least initially, to kind of support teams. So, you know, you're working, you got leisure activities you want to do, you have disposable income, you know, what are you going to spend it on? Uh, and so people like Ruth Foster were sensitive to that, but knew that if we had league structures uh, would organize teams, that that would help stabilize teams as opposed to them starting and stopping and trying to schedule games like traveling circus roadshows, if you will. Uh, so there were several attempts to do that. 
but the most successful one happened when mostly Midwestern team owners decided to come together after the 1919 year, which was the uh, so-called Black Sox scandal in Major League Baseball, and many other things were happening, race riots, the the pandemic was going on as well, um, to try to figure out how to solidify this. And again, editors in Black newspapers like the Chicago Defender and the papers in Indianapolis and others were really pushing these Midwestern team owners to try to figure out a way to hammer out some kind of formal league structure that would parallel the white major leagues. Uh, And ultimately that meeting fell to Kansas City uh, to host um, at the Black YMCA. And that was February of 1920, February 13th to be precise. And Mr. Foster, who was the head of the Chicago team, Chicago American Giants, great pitcher in his own right, uh, but later on would become an entrepreneur uh, and baseball team leader, had uh, the connections in the upper Midwest and in Chicago with white baseball teams like Chicago White Sox for access to stadiums and facilities and, and had a very good baseball team. And so he wasn't a sole brainchild, but he was someone who was really driving a lot of the activity uh, because he had a lot of influence in the Midwest. Uh, And uh, the Chicago Defender newspapers reporting on the meeting and talking about how he he basically had things organized. He had a charter set up. He had uh, articles of incorporation that he had been working on and things like that much to the surprise of the other team owners who showed up. And uh, then he was named league president and they hammered out the governing bodies and and set it up. And that included a team that would be formed here in Kansas City. There were other teams from Detroit and Indianapolis and Dayton, Ohio, among other places, St. Louis as well. Uh, But a team in, in Kansas City had to, in some respects, be formed and it was formed out of a group of, of players on an integrated team, initially called the um, All Nations team, which was managed by a white man named J.L. Wilkinson from Iowa. And Wilkinson, they wanted to just take advantage of the growing Black population in the West, as they called it, which Kansas City was westernmost uh, of the places available. And he used his connections and the All Nations team was an exhibition team that traveled in and around Iowa, Missouri, Nebraska, the Dakotas. And he had a core group of Black players from that team and um, recruited some other players who actually were Army veterans uh, and created the Kansas City Monarchs. And uh, they were a powerhouse team and among the longest lasting. And that was uh, the uh, formation of the Negro National League. Yeah, I didn't realize that about J.L. Wilkinson because he was one of the only white owners in the Negro Leagues. Is that right? Initially, he was. Uh, and, uh, okay. and he had a business partner named Tom Baird, who was also white. And... Um, after the Negro National League formed in 1920, around 1922, 1923, the Eastern Colored League formed, and these were mostly East Coast, uh, Northeast teams in and around Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore area, uh, among others, Philadelphia. Uh, And there was a lot more white uh, business involvement with those teams, primarily uh, some in ownership, but mostly as uh, booking agents. Uh, who and the booking agents controlled access to stadiums and helping the teams get places where they could play. And so they had an enormous amount of uh, financial influence over those teams. But 
the Eastern League and the Negro National League began to play against each other. Um, they fought for players. They had disputes. Players jumped contracts. Uh, and there were always issues, but they did have enough wherewithal to figure out that in order to get things more stable, they need to figure out some governing things and interleague play. And they were able to work all that out and began to have an annual Negro Leagues World Series beginning in 1924. And that lasted up through about the, the start of the Great Depression. Okay. And then would stop and then would reform later. Okay. Yeah. And all this happened a hundred years ago. And a hundred years ago from last year was the formation of the Negro National League. And I know there was a lot of celebrations planned and then the pandemic happened. And it was funny you mentioned the pandemic of the Spanish flu back in the uh, 1900s, where that was kind of the same time um, in the century. So I know the the Negro Leagues Museum has kind of pivoted now to this Negro Leagues 101 program, and there's 101 facts um, on social media about the Negro Leagues and some star players and other folks are helping with that. But I know there's some other components as well. So can you kind of talk about the other components and explain that with the Negro Leagues 101? Well, we're hopeful to just use Negro Leagues 101 moving forward. So 101 obviously connects to the 101st anniversary of the Negro National League, but obviously has the, uh, the cachet of the uh, education uh, theme. And so moving forward, uh, you will see 101 as kind of a moniker for generally all our educational programming. Okay. Uh, we've been uh, doing some virtual programs, things that we might have done in person in the past, like author talks and book signings. Uh, many of those programs have shifted virtually until things are safer for us to do those programs in person. But at the same time, the virtual programs have allowed us to reach a lot more people uh, who obviously can't come to Kansas City and see these programs in person. So uh, you'll start to see some of those programs coming back, and a lot of them will have a virtual component, whether they're in person or not. Uh, and so anything that's that's educational will have that one on one moniker. Our hope was also to kind of come up with a Negro Leagues uh, uh, course, if you will, air quotes included, uh, where we probably can't pull together a full course on the Negro Leagues, but we are trying to plan a lecture series on the history of the Negro Leagues. And that's 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 still a little fluid, but in the works in terms of identifying scholars. And we, we pretty much have a good roster of people that we want to turn to. But the idea would be to give people a good high school AP or first year college level understanding of what the 100 years of Negro Leagues history was about. So not just that we were celebrating recently the 100th anniversary, but actually going back 1860 to 1960, which is kind of the scope the general scope of the history. So, and that would include some of the, the connections to early black baseball, pre-Negro leagues, the founding of the Negro leagues, uh, the role of people like Foster and other key players, the role of women, uh, the connections to the war years, both World War I, uh, World War I, World War II, and um, the integration of baseball as well. Uh, in the role played by Jackie Robinson. That's what I love about the museum too, is that it touches a lot of other aspects of American history, not only just civil rights, but also inclusion of women and the military and um, even some musical ties with the jazz museum right there. So I think that's really important. And what's kind of been the impact of the museum's location in 18th and Vine? Because that would have been 
a hopping place back when Satchel Paige and Jackie Robinson were playing in Kansas City. So how is that kind of related to the museum's location today? Well, as I noted, the birthplace of the Negro National League was right around the corner at the YMCA. So um, there was a, a, a desire early on for those who were developing the museum to try to have a presence here to help revitalize the area. Uh, we, in a normal year, averaged 60 to 70,000 visitors uh, to the area. And that doesn't include free events or other large special events that we might do. So uh, it's uh, as uh, noted in one of the books on the monarchs, uh, a bartender back then said the monarchs made Kansas City the talk of the town all over the world. <laughs> and so we like to think that here at the museum, we've, we've uh, highlighted Kansas City uh, in terms of a place for understanding African-American history in the heartland. Uh, and of course, the the great role that baseball plays. And I think what's important about that nationally as well as internationally is that, you know, we're in the Midwest and some say uh, Kansas City is kind of one of those flyover places, but for a while there, uh, and it'll rebound because it's a, it's a robust convention town and people do come to visit. Uh, they're part of some of these larger conventions that have been held here in Kansas City and they stumble upon the museum and it's real easy to find. And then they're pleasantly surprised when they get here, not understanding that this rich history was here in the heartland and not on one of the coasts. And it's much easier to get here than, say, Cooperstown, New York, where the National Baseball Hall of Fame is, although it's, a, it's beautiful. It is quite a journey. I've made that journey a few times. You fly through Baltimore, and you got to fly to Albany, and you got to drive 45 minutes to Cooperstown. Um, and so you, you lose a day, even if you're trying to do research before you get there, although it's quite beautiful up there. But we hope to be kind of a central point for baseball history, conveniently located in the Midwest. Uh, and then with the hopefully the uh, the building of the research center, we can make these connections to other repositories to related to baseball history, not just the Negro Leagues. And you can come here and at least start some baseball research. And hopefully we won't may not have like maybe an actual file or item, but we hope to know where it is or be able to connect folk to things electronically uh, across the country. That's awesome. I think that'll be a really important piece of the research component and the archives and a lot of that. So I wanted to also talk about the field of legends at the museum. That's what I remember most from being there several times is the, the statues of Satchel Paige and a lot of other folks that are right as you walk in. And I know there's um, kind of chicken wire that you have to see behind. And that's very illustrative of how it was because of the segregation. So is that your favorite part of the museum or are there some other parts that are your favorite? Oh, well, you're, you're asking the curator to pick a favorite part <laughs> of something he has to take care of every day. I, I, um, I will say that it is one of the most impactful parts of the museum because obviously sure. it's the largest part of the museum. And, um, it is called a field of legends and it's a mock baseball diamond featuring bronze sculptures of key figures in African-American baseball history. Many of them are inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in New York. But what's important about that is that we are not a Hall of Fame. Some people always call us a Hall of Fame, a Negro League Hall of Fame or Black Baseball Hall of Fame. No, we're not a Hall of Fame. Negro Leagues existed because these Black baseball players are not allowed uh, to play in the same leagues as white baseball players. So um, we didn't want to create a separate or segregated Hall of Fame either. So fortunately, 
many of those who were models for our statues had already been honored by the Hall of Fame. And we thought, well, this is a very good group and good team. So well, uh, what initially started off as just generic statues turned into honoring uh, key people and uh, uh, players like Leroy Satchel Page, this pitcher, and Josh Gibson, his catcher, among others, uh, worked out very well. And they are pretty much in their natural baseball positions as well defensively and we have a batter and now recently we've added an umpire and there's also a statue of Mr. Foster that's in the perimeter of the exhibit and then also a statue of Mr. O'Neill, Buck O'Neill as the the manager of this fictitious all-star team if you will but he's standing on the outside of the chicken wire fence that you mentioned and the fence it greets you as you walk through old turnstiles to come into the, the mock stadium that we have. So as he's managing the game, the fence is there to uh, uh, mythically to keep you from getting hit by any stray baseballs, of course. Uh, but chicken wire was often used in some places where there was segregated seating for black and white. So you are segregated from the field as well. Uh, when you look through the chicken wire and the idea is that you can't get to the field although there is a shortcut there but we don't that's not normally the way you go Uh, you need to walk through and around the museum learn all the history and then you earn the right to walk onto the field and it's our hope that you get a better appreciation for what the players endured to get to this place of honor yeah that's really well put I think it's important to see how it really was uh, back then with the segregation and then you get to celebrate at the end when you get to squat next to Josh Gibson as catcher or stand up by Oscar Charleston and stuff like that. And I think it's, it's a really special part of the museum and it's, it's probably one of the the cooler aspects, like you said. So I wanted to ask you as well as the curator, how do you care for some of the older artifacts? Because these games were happening 70, 80 years ago and and some of the, the materials may not be in the best condition, but what are some ways that you can preserve those things? Well, I admit I'm not a conservator but we try to follow best practices as much as possible. And if there's something that is uh, threatened by conditions, then we either just try to keep that filed away uh, securely with the appropriate boxes and papers and things like that, Um, but try to exhibit as much stuff as possible, being mindful of light and light levels, making sure everything's in a secure case, Humidity is not a major issue in our museum, uh, but those sometimes that's something to be concerned about with certain artifacts. Uh, for the most part, the types of things we're dealing with are either textiles or really hard objects or paper. Uh, and of course, the, these, these items have already endured a long history uh, of utilitarian use when you're talking about uniforms and, and equipment. So uh, it's just a matter of trying to keep them looking as best they can um, from the time that they were used. Mm -hmm. One of the rules that I try to follow from my museum studies days is that don't do anything to an object that you can't undo. (laughs) uh to an object makes sense yeah uh and um and you know but over the years people have balls for example that have been signed and they're covered in shellac uh, uh you know and things like that which does preserve signatures but i don't know if something happens if that cracks then that that messes with the aesthetics of the of the baseball maybe you can't read the signatures so we deal with a lot of that sometimes um 
But we have just a lot of sign things and usually light is the enemy. And I admit even sometimes we have too much light on things, but that's something we try to balance and just try to be mindful of, keep things clean. Really the objects, the, what the other side of the object issue though too with the Negro Leagues is that there really aren't that many uh, <laughs> in terms of like true real period historical objects. I mean, between us and the Baseball Hall of Fame are a few things, but most of this history has survived through newspapers and photographs and uh and even those are rare uh and so with many photographs we just reproduce them and show them uh as opposed to showing original photographs uh in the exhibit so just try to you know as i said use best practices try to uh display things so that they they can be read and seen um but where possible be selective and choosing items that really do kind of push the story forward. Yes, it may be of interest to have a particular baseball signed by a famous player, but hopefully that there's a, a greater story behind the item uh, so that you can justify the expense of cases and space and security and cameras and cleaning and every other thing that goes with having that object, uh, especially in a limited space. Our space is only 10,000 square feet and we're pretty, we're pretty full uh, in terms of stuff that could go on display. And although I do have a, I have a room full of stuff that I have not displayed, uh, some of those things are maybe larger items. If I had another 5,000 square feet, maybe even 10, I could probably f get close to filling it depending on how it's displayed, but, but not necessarily more than that. You know, we also have a changing gallery that we share with the American Jazz Museum, who's our neighbors. And so when possible, we either create exhibits or, or, or borrow exhibits from other repositories to try to enhance the stories of different things where possible. Yeah, you keep talking about stories. I think that's really important to share the story of the Negro Leagues. And is there a picture or artifact that kind of encompasses that story maybe the best or something from your years that reminds you of, of that story? Well, I always get this question. So, well, there are two items that have unique stories that... Um, actually deal more with the integration of baseball, but uh, do speak to the level uh, of people and characters in the Negro Leagues, but also the impact of Black baseball players on the broader American story. So one such item is a baseball uh, that is on loan to us from a local family. The baseball is signed by Jackie Robinson. It's also signed by other African-American players and contemporaries of Robinson teammates of the Brooklyn Dodgers from around 1952-1953. So that includes Roy Campanella, that includes Junior Gilliam, and that includes Joe Black. On the reverse, it's signed by Ty Cobb, right? So if you're a baseball fan, you know who Ty Cobb is. He's one of the greatest players of all time, but a white baseball player, and some would argue that he may be among the most racist baseball players or people that they have known. So there's debate about that what his feelings were about black players and things like that. But he played certainly in an era where that was not open to black players in the major league. So here's the story. The story is truly about the integration of America uh, because the ball belonged to a man named James Moore. And we're fortunate from the family to only have the baseball, but a copy of a photograph of Mr. Moore at Fort Riley, Kansas. Uh, in the photo, he's at the chapel at Fort Riley with his friends who are getting married. And among the friends at the wedding is Lieutenant Jackie Robinson. And Moore and Robinson were friends from the Army. 
So after the war, I mean, uh, Robinson has very historic actual experience in the army. I'll spare you that entire story. But but he after the army, he goes on to become famous Jackie Robinson. Mr. Moore settles in Kansas City, Kansas and becomes a tavern owner. So what happens? Robinson integrates baseball. And for many fans who want to see Jackie Robinson play, if you don't have a major league baseball team in your community, you would go to one and watch him. So for Kansas Cityans who did not have a major league team, that meant taking the train from Union Station and going to either St. Louis to watch Cardinals games or go to Chicago and watch Chicago Cubs as they battled against the Brooklyn Dodgers. So Mr. Moore and some friends and one of his daughters take the train to Chicago uh, to go watch the Dodgers and the Cubs. It is presumed that Mr. Moore, who, again, they're longtime friends, got a chance to see Robinson. It's presumed that Robinson signed the baseball for him and Robinson perhaps persuaded other teammates to sign the ball. Cobb is at the game in the audience. Cobb and Robinson's careers are separated by at least 40 years. Cobb was well long retired by then. But he's famous, and so he's at the game, and he's announced, and he's uh, – waving to the fans. And Mr. Moore, this diminutive Black Army veteran, goes up to Mr. Cobb and gets the other signature on the reverse side. So my friends at the Baseball Hall of Fame who've seen the ball uh, and has been featured on the Antiques Roadshow, as a matter of fact, uh, verified that you know Cobb often signed in the distinguishable green ink and the ball, the signature resembles that. And so, uh, so we've got two stories. Black fans beginning the migration from major from Negro Leagues to Major League Baseball, watching their Black favorite Black players, uh, the role of Black fans in uh, wanting to see Jackie Robinson, and then the irony of Robinson and Cobb being on the same baseball. I would argue, though, too, uh, and I've written about the fact that the player that most people compared Robinson to when he came up was Ty Cobb because it was very, he was a very aggressive player as well. And despite what you may think about Cobb's racial animus, that is a high compliment because Cobb was truly one of the greatest players. And so we, there are a lot of stories connected to just this one baseball. And so you pull that out. Wow, there, there are a couple other ones, but here's another baseball that we recently got. And it also somewhat involves Jackie Robinson, but it actually involves his teammate Roy Campanella a little bit more. We recently got this baseball donated to us uh, from the Hofstetter family. So here's the story. It is an, uh, around 1954 multi-signature baseball of the Brooklyn Dodgers, including Roy Campanella. The ball belonged to a Mr. Hofstetter, who was a Brooklyn store owner who ran an electri electrician store. Uh, as the story has it, this, uh, Roy Campanella came into the store and needed advice on some work on his home. And Mr. Hofstetter gave him that advice and some equipment and Everything worked out. Campanella was very thankful uh, and wanted to do something for him. And he said, think nothing of it, you know, as he knew he was and was very proud to help. But Campanella comes back and produces uh, some, some weeks later this baseball, signed by the entire team uh, and uh, in a Spalding packaging bag. All right. So eventually that ball passes down to Mr. Hofstetter's son. And the son kept the baseball as a treasured item, kept it in a sock drawer, in the original packaging and everything. And as he got older and started his own family, he told folks of the story of the baseball, but no one had ever seen the baseball because <laughs> he kept it hidden. 
And so they're like, yeah, yeah, dad, you know, yeah, we'd love to see the baseball someday. He never showed it to anybody. Well, he passed away. And ultimately now the ball appears uh, as part of his, uh, his estate and will, and he passes it down to his sons. And so they're in disbelief and they actually see the actual baseball. So this story is told by Stephen Hofstetter, who is a stand-up comedian. He tells the story on Twitter uh, and it gets to our president, Bob Kendrick. And, and Kendrick asks, well, you know, we'd love to have that baseball or see it. And so, and it belongs to him and his brother and they make arrangements. And uh, Mr. Hofstetter comes to Kansas City often to do uh, performances. So uh, another, and he knows about the Negro Leagues and loves the museum and made arrangements and his brother came and they dedicated the baseball. And it's in the museum. So uh, again, just just uh, the the connections to people and to families and to stories. That ball was in that family for well over sixty years, and for many of those years, had not seen the light of day until now. And now it's on display in the museum. And, and you know, and but at the same time, this is a white uh, family, a Jewish family, you know, and just kind of showing. Uh, the connections between races as well, you know, with Campanella and this connection to this African-American baseball player and, and this long history and the love of the Dodgers and, and all of that, just the story of the baseball. And there, and, you know, there are plenty of single uh, multi-signed baseballs that are, of the team. Those are highly collectible items, but there's probably none that has this unique story. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's cool. I knew about the Jackie Robinson and Ty Cobb baseball, but I didn't know the story behind it. And then the Hofstetter ball, that's just, you can't make that stuff up. That's just awesome. (laughs) And there are others. The ball finally comes alive and I'm sure every artifact has a story like that. No, you hope so. And, and if folks are willing to kind of look beyond just one of the, I'll be frank, one of the things I hate about my job is shopping for memorabilia uh, at auctions because they have a different value to me than just the, the monetary value, but memorabilia for, for sports is, uh, is, is not quite as subjective as art, but it's still very, it, it's still kind of commodity kind of connected. And so, but, you know, I'm trying to tell stories. So it's one thing they maybe have an example of a Satchel Pace signature, which obviously could be worth this or worth that, but, if it's something that also connects to a broader American story or a personal story, then it has even more impact here. So one, I can't, I don't have enough money to go out and just buy everything anyway, but when I do, right. It needs when possible. And of course we have limited space, so we can't just show everything when we are able to buy something, uh, and Mr. Kendrick allows me to go out and get things. Uh, and he's the one that I've got to kind of tone down as far as weight. Maybe we shouldn't spend as much money. <laughs> but, uh, my, I've learned that sometimes it's best for me to say no. Uh, but but we, we try to be try to find those things that have those stories and are impactful as well. And saying no is important because as we've gotten more popular, people want to just share a whole lot of stuff with us. Uh, I won't say that they're sharing junk or anything like that, but there are things that, well, you know, not always necessarily move the needle or maybe not necessarily be connected to the primary Negro leagues. Or maybe it's just black baseball and it's interesting, uh, but we just can't collect everything. So uh, at least not right now, because we don't have a lot of space for it. And if, and if I don't necessarily see a future use for it in exhibits, 
beyond just having it from an archival reference standpoint, then it's my job to tell folks, no, we're not, we don't want, we can't use that. I hate to take it, especially if there's an expectation that we might display it because they're probably, we're probably not able to. Yeah. I've heard that from other museums too, where you gotta have hard conversations sometimes and just, this is a great artifact and I'm sure it means a lot to you all, but it can't, it can't be part of our collection. And yeah. So you guys are not the only ones having those, those battles, which I I've learned during the podcast. I don't think about those things when I go to museums, but I'm sure there's conversations like that all the time. And so I'm going to ask you for one more story. If you have a favorite sure. Buck O'Neill story um, as we wrap up here, I know he was a, a great man. I actually have assigned a monarch's hat of his. I got to meet him when he was elderly and I, I was just a kid and there's some pictures of that and he was just a special man. So if you have any um, of your favorite stories, I would love to hear one. Well, you know, Mr. O'Neill was always very gregarious and for the most part, um, I mean, I've seen, I had seen him uh, uh, always trying to entertain folk, but also in serious moments as well. But one that has really nothing to do with baseball in that I was fortunate to host my wedding down here at the museum. Uh, and uh, uh, in the, the Blue Room at the Jazz Museum, which is part of the jazz, as a nightclub, mm -hmm. part of the Jazz Museum. So we had an un, unconventional wedding and he was a guest. And uh, I, I just, I, the sight of him dancing uh, <laughs> at my wedding is one of the great things. He wore this very light suit and he was just as, as natally attired as always. Uh, and in particular, I was just reflecting on a photograph because he's dancing with my wife's cousin uh, in the photograph. And my sister, one of my sisters is also in the same photograph. And, and unfortunately, uh, the cousin and my sister, Amherst, are all gone now. They've all passed away. Uh, and so it was just a great memory when, when my wife's cousin kind of, she abruptly passed away. And that was kind of re reflecting on that photo mm. and her dancing with Buck. And that brought back some great memories of her and, and also my sister as well and, and him. Uh, and just in a moment that he was just caught up in the music and caught up in the moment and and uh, just made for one of, one of the more memorable experiences of my life. So that was Mr. O'Neill for me. And that's one of the best ways I like to remember him having fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Every picture I see of him, he's always smiling and he was just a, a joy to be around, I'm sure. So that's, that's an awesome story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. My last thing here is I would love to, for you to tell people where they can find the museum, whether in person or online. So wh what are some ways they can engage with the museum? So we are located uh, in the 18th Divine Historic District in Kansas City, Missouri. The address is 1616 East 18th Street. Uh, we're just about mm, 10 minutes east of downtown and uh, uh, also east of the Crown Center area uh, of Kansas City. Uh, and just a few minutes away, well, about maybe 15, 20 minutes away from the stadium, uh, Kauffman Stadium, because so, a lot of folks like to travel to ball games and then make a, a visit either before or after uh, uh, games uh, to come see the museum. So you can engage us online at www.nlbm.com where we have information on membership. Um, that's which is one of the best ways for folks to engage, to become a member and support our mission and support our programming here at the museum. Uh, we also have a, a Facebook presence uh, at Negro Leagues Baseball Museum on Facebook. We're on Twitter as well at uh, NLB Museum KC um, and on Instagram. We have a YouTube channel as well, NLB Museum on YouTube. 
Uh, and a lot of the virtual programs we have done, especially in the last year, are recorded on YouTube and you can go back and watch some of those as well as some other film clips and things related to Negro League's history. Um, and not all those programs are necessarily Negro Leagues related per se, but they do kind of deal with race and sports uh, like our Urban Youth Sports Symposium we had with Adewale Ogunlie, who was a, a, a defensive player for Chicago Bears a few years ago, but the program was meant targeted at student athletes. Um, he uh, he's he's taken his uh, just as a quick example. He's taken his uh, athletic career. He's now retired, but now he's a financial advisor. So we were, you know, the conversation was for youth athletes to talk about how to prepare for the future and, and go over his background and his path to uh, football as a son of Nigerian immigrants and things like that. So we we can do programs like that as uh, as well as author series and things. And you can go back and watch those and others will be posted as they happen. And they're usually live on Facebook or YouTube as well. So uh, so Facebook, YouTube, or our museum store is also online on our website as well. So uh, donations, um, financial, um, and things like that. They can always reach out to the museum if they have questions about the history and we'll do our best to answer them or point them in the right direction. Yeah. Being from Kansas City myself, one of the best parts is the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I'm grateful for your time today, Raymond, and for your storytelling and just the way that the museum is preserving those stories of Black baseball in the Negro Leagues and relating that to the next generation like myself and like kids younger than than me. So I think it's it's really awesome that you are doing the work that you do and it's you've been there almost since the beginning, which is pretty cool. So thanks for your time today and it's been an awesome conversation. Well thank you for the opportunity. One of my prized possessions is a Kansas City Monarchs cap signed by the late great Buck O'Neill. My dad and I met Buck at a public event when I was a little kid in Kansas City. Even though Buck passed away when I was seven, I grew up learning about him and his impressive legacy. For this episode's overtime segment, I'll be exploring the amazing life of John Jordan Buck O'Neill. Buck was born in Carabell, Florida on November 13, 1911. When he was 12, he moved to Sarasota and began working in the celery fields. This was around the time when Buck first expressed interest in playing baseball. He played at Edward Waters College in Jacksonville and then began his professional career touring with the Miami Giants. He signed with the Memphis Red Sox of the Negro American League in 1937, his first official Major League season. However, Buck moved quickly the next season to the Kansas City Monarchs, the team he is synonymous with, along with fellow greats Satchel Paige, Willard Brown, and Hilton Smith. Buck stayed with the Monarchs until 1955 as a player, manager, and player manager. During the middle of his career, Buck served our country for three years when he was drafted into the Navy during World War II and was in a construction battalion. Buck played first base, and while he didn't have the prodigious power of Josh Gibson or Buck Leonard, Buck O'Neill did win the batting title in 1946 with a 353 average. That winter, he played on his friend Satchel Paige's all-star team that barnstormed with and played against Bob Feller's white all-star team. He was a great defensive first baseman and a very sharp baseball man overall, even though he was denied the opportunity to play in MLB due to the color of his skin. Buck was a three-time all-star and won the 1942 Negro League World Series as a player, and as a manager, he led the Monarchs to four league titles. After his managing days ended, Buck joined Major League Baseball's Chicago Cubs as a scout in 1956. Known as one of the greatest scouts of all time, Buck scouted and signed Lou Brock and Ernie Banks, among other stars of the 50s and 60s, as well as Bo Jackson when he scouted for the Royals in the 80s. Buck became the first black coach in Major League Baseball in 1962. Buck rose to national prominence when he was featured in Ken Burns' baseball documentary in 1994. 
His infectious personality and fantastic storytelling about the Negro Leagues helped raise awareness about the great players of his day. The Negro Leagues Baseball Museum was Buck's brainchild. He and Royals Hall of Famer Frank White paid the rent when it was a single-room exhibit, and then he was chairman when the current museum was constructed in the late 90s. Buck served on the Veterans Committee for the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, helping ensure Negro Leaguers like Hilton Smith and Bullet Rogan were enshrined. Buck himself fell short of the necessary votes from a special 2006 committee, but he spoke when his contemporaries were inducted that summer, all linked to his incredible speech in the show notes. Shortly thereafter, Buck passed away in October 2006. He was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by George W. Bush, and his legacy lives on in many ways. A life-size statue at the Baseball Hall of Fame, which also bestows the Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award on individuals whose extraordinary efforts enhanced baseball's positive impact on society, broadened the game's appeal, and whose character, integrity, and dignity are comparable to the qualities exhibited by O'Neill. And as Raymond mentioned, the Buck O'Neill Research and Education Center is in the works near the museum, which is perhaps Buck's greatest legacy. What an incredible man who has done so much to tell the story of the Negro Leagues. As Raymond said, you can find the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum online at nlbm.com and in person in the historic 18th and Vine Jazz District in Kansas City, Missouri. As a native Kansas Cityan, I cannot recommend the museum enough. Look in this episode's show notes for the museum's website and social media pages, plus more information on Buck O'Neill. Thanks to Raymond for the important work he does for the NLBM and for taking time to speak to me for the pod. I hope you enjoyed episode 15 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum Podcast. Please share the pod with a friend. We have episodes about golf, football, rodeo, basketball, baseball, and more. I'm thankful for you listening. I'll see you next time, sports fans.